Good afternoon. Uh, Ireland has long been famous for its writers, its thinkers, its philosophers. Uh, people like uh, Burke, for example, who um, led so much of the analysis of the, of the tumultuous events of the 18th century, who led um, in many ways the thinking in Britain and Westminster away from revolution and towards a more peaceful, um, thoughtful and painstaking approach to change and to developing a society. Ireland of late has become somewhat hostile to its own thinkers. Just as the society in Scotland, in England, and in places as far away as Canada, Australia, United States, have seen um, a, a, a fractious, um, an intemperate, um, and a very brittle ideology characterised as woke uh, come in and displace what had been there before. Ireland has seen this uh, very strongly. And one of the people who have pushed back against this is my guest today, John Waters. And John has pushed back against it with a degree of gentleness and passion and love for his country and his people and his society um, that shines through in his work. And he's done what is so difficult to do. He's looked at contemporary society and he's, he's spoken honestly about what he sees. Um, and um, for this, he's been a big hero of all of us at UK Column for some considerable time. And I'm delighted to welcome him today. Uh, John, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, David. Uh, nice to be with you. I'd like to look at, a, at the, your most recent article today, John, um, and discuss it with you. Um, you've you've issued this. You you publish these things on uh, in your own right because um, publishing them in the mainstream Irish press, I think, is no longer possible. Uh, it's called "Fake Money as a Cluster Bomb." Uh, just before we get into the the subject of that article. Um, could you just say a few words about how you're publishing information now and and why it's not um, in the kind of journalistic field that you used to be uh, making your career and your living in? I'm on uh, Substack now, like half the world, uh, uh, I, th I suppose, at this stage. Although I was actually on quite early on in its life. Um, I've been on about nearly three years now. Uh, and uh, I'm on at johnwaters.substack.com. John Waters Unchained is easier to remember. Um, as to your sec the second part of your question, I mean, I, I worked for 30 years in the mainstream media, um, 35 years, and, and 24 of those in the Irish Times, Ireland's paper of record. And, uh, you know, I, I continued until, uh, I lasted until 2014, uh, when very strange events started to unfold in the paper and around it, concern, particularly concerning the forthcoming referendum at that stage in, uh, on marriage, the gay marriage, uh, in other words. And uh, it was anticipated that I would uh, resist that, and that may or may not have been an accurate uh, presumption. But uh, in any event, I didn't get a chance to even begin to resist. Uh, I was uh, attacked, you know, some... Uh, 18 months actually before the referendum actually took place. So, uh, and I found that several of my own colleagues were involved sur uh, surreptitiously in attacking me under pseudonyms on Twitter and so on. So I decided I couldn't continue in such a place. And uh, I, I, a year later, I continued in, in journalism uh, for another year uh, for a, a rival newspaper, The Independent. And uh, uh, but at that stage, I realized that this rot had, had spread to everything in the media and that it was no longer possible to actually, you know, be, be, to do a job on the basis that you were there to express your honest opinions, you know, take a position as you saw the world and to express that. And so uh, I decided to leave and uh, I then spent a few years in the wilderness uh, I suppose. And then I, uh, three years ago, as I say, about uh, uh, the autumn of 2020, I, I started on Substack, uh, having been kind of, I suppose, there involved in public events 
for some months before that, particularly in relation to a, a court case, a challenge myself, taken by myself and another former journalist or other journalist, uh, if you want to con- define journalist correctly, uh, uh, Jim O'Doherty. And we took a challenge uh, to, to the courts uh, about the lockdown on the basis that it was clearly unconstitutional and that there's, if if this was permitted, well, then we didn't have a constitution. So I went to the courts in search of reassurance that we actually did. And unfortunately, we were disappointed on that score because it turns out we don't actually have a constitution. Yeah, constitutions are not quite what they're um, claimed to be. Um, Canada's also found this out. Um, the constitution has a, has a fine start, places everything uh, as a hierarchy under God, and there's not been much of that visible in uh, Canadian government policy of late. Um, and uh, things are really no better in Britain, which used to pride itself of having the finest constitution in the world because it wasn't written down and it was a bit more flexible and it could evolve over time. And uh, that's not been any sort of protection either because the evolution has been to um, erode things of value without realising what was being lost. Uh, If we can come to your article, so Fake Money is Cluster Bomb is the title. I was very struck by the the opening line, which is money is clearly not what it used to seem to be. Now, the, this this struck me because one of the things that we use to illustrate the nature of the problem with money is uh, some of the charts that run from the end of the Second World War through to the present day. So if you chart um, real earnings against productivity, for example, um, those lines go up in lockstep. It's hard to tell those two lines are so close. Real earnings and productivity rise entirely together until 1971. And then in 1971, productivity continues to rise on its more or less its former path, and real earnings basically go flat. So all of the gains from rising productivity by the people um, by extra investment, by the benefits of capitalism, all the rest of that, are no longer distributed in terms of wages as they were up until 1971. And of course, what happened in 1971? Well, the last vestiges of real money, the last link to a gold standard, uh, was abandoned uh, when America defaulted. So this struck me, you know, this money's not what it used to be, it's very much a line that I followed. You continue, once it was a measure of human work and genius and produce by virtue of being the token of reward for all of these, now it is uh, as though the measure, sorry, now it is as though the measure of the threat to our civilization. Um, so money becoming actually a corrosive element money taking a part of a civilization. What led you to this conclusion? Well, I've been thinking about it in all kinds of directions uh, for a long time and then and, and following different threads. And uh, um, it's quite a, it's a very complex subject and a lot of it is kind of confusing. A lot of wires tangled together. It's very hard to sort it out, you know. But I read a book, for a very interesting book some, uh, some months ago by a guy called Roy Sabak called The Natural Order of Money, which is a very slim volume. And I gather he intended to write a vast volume, uh, you know, initially. And then he, at the very last moment, he decided, no, I need to do this very thoughtfully. And it is a really beautiful book uh, because it it defines, first of all, the nature of an economy, which is essentially, at the, there are two circles. The inner circle is uh, productive work for essential, in the product, work in the production of essentials. So that's, that includes people like farmers, miners, lumberjacks, uh, fishermen, etc., and not not an awful lot of more uh, more of uh, more personnel, right? And then beyond that, then is the overflow. That at a certain point, when the participants in the inner economy, the the the, the real economy have enough for themselves, they produce a surplus. And this surplus enables an outer ring to develop, which is the service economy. Now, the inner economy, he says, has to obey certain laws, certain rules, the law of the land, the law of, you know, the farmer has to respect his soil, for example. He has to make sure he keeps it in good health. The fisherman has to accept, respect the water and so on. And he says these laws also have to affect and have to be respected in the outer ring if it is to remain coherent. 
So I, I, I wrote a, 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 an article about that some months ago in which I was really making the case, quite related to this article, that what has fundamentally gone wrong you know, at, at the macro level is that these laws are no longer obeyed in that outer ring. And indeed, they're no longer obeyed in the inner ring because the outer ring imposes its own logic on that. You can see this, for example, with the Dutch farmers, you know, that the farmers are no longer permitted to be farmers. The farmers are no longer permitted to simply approach their work the way they have done it always and, and respect the soil, respect the land, as the Dutch farmers above all have done. And uh, so you get this incoherence begins to enter in then. But then you see that this then begins to create a, a kind of a different notion of economics. And this is fundamentally, I think, what's gone wrong, is that a science, as it were, has developed around something very simple. You know, when I was a child, uh, I, I used to go and visit my grandmother in the summertime, and she was a farmer. And, you know, she produced most of her own food. Uh, she had milk and cheese and butter, and she made her own bread, she made her own jam and so on. And then on a Saturday night, she would go out down to the, the traveling shop, would pull up at the front gate, and she would carry down two trays of eggs, and she would exchange those for the things that she couldn't produce herself. No money would change, no money as such. But in actual fact, the, the eggs were money in a certain sense. In a sense, and they were, that, therefore, the, that money has to adhere, therefore, to that, to almost like, if you like, the quality of the egg. And in true history, as Sebag is making the point in that gold became the, the nearest uh, correla correlative uh, uh, phenomenon, which could be used in this way in order to, to track the value of the produce, the measure of the work, and the measure of the reward, and not lose anything in the process, not be interfered with by and large. Worst, there was interference, you know, the shaving of gold coins and so on was a, a well-known phenomenon. But nevertheless, in principle, this was how it worked. And it seems, you know, that once we deviate from that, then you end up eventually, you go off on one and you eventually end up where we are, where money has no value at all in a certain sense. It can do things. It's extraordinary. You know, we're looking at a situation in Ireland at the moment of mass migration just to take an example, and for 10 years, we've had a housing crisis in Ireland. We've had 10,000 Irish people unable to find homes, living in rough, living in, in hostels and so on, living in rented accommodation, families living in hotel rooms. And the politicians just shrug their shoulders and say, you know, there's nothing we can do. It's, it's, it's an intractable problem. You know, it's just the way it is. But then suddenly they're we, are, we find this year, that we have all this, this inflow of, in, of refugees from Ukraine, quite a few of them, and indeed a lot of people apparently coming from elsewhere who are pretending to be Ukrainians. Uh, but anyway, and then many of these are unvetted, but that's beside the point in this, in this particular argument. And, but now, suddenly, the problem of housing is actually uh, soluble. It can be fixed. The government is able to actually create housing can build modular homes, dozens, hundreds of them, like overnight in a matter of weeks, uh, and so on. So you have to ask yourself, to, these appear to be there for, people will say, well, that's just un, uh, injustice, and it is. But there's something else going on. What you're dealing with here is two different quantities, two different kinds of money. In the first instance, you're dealing with some semblance of real money when the government says there is none because there isn't. But in the context in which we now find ourselves, there is no end of money because of all the circumstances in which we find ourselves in the context of the pandemic over the last three years, when it seemed suddenly all the bets were off and there was no limit on money whatsoever, that there was no end of the amount of paper that could be generated calling itself money to do whatever was necessary, as though as though it is almost like, you know, if somebody, uh, you know, uh, uh, wins the lottery and then gets, you know, finds out that they have a terminal disease and they have only a, a year to live. So they spend the full year trying to spend all the money they've won before they die. There's almost that quality about what's happening, that, it's, that, that because, as clearly is the case, this whole thing has been about money in the first place. I mean, this started... 
uh, as I understand it, with a notification sent out by BlackRock, the world's greatest, biggest uh, asset management company, on the 15th of August, 2019, to inform the G20 and the supranational organizations like the UN and the EU and uh, the WEF that the world economy was about to collapse, the currencies were in grave danger, and they needed to be put in a coma. The whole thing needed to be put in a coma. And essentially, by that telling of things, and I think it's pretty accurate, that uh, the, the, the entire thing was about that. And in that period then, the, what happened was in that context of the coma, that we could move money around in a certain way, but not in certain other ways. We had to close down the economy, but we could give pay people to stay at home. And then you create all of these absurdities whereby, because fundamentally you're not dealing with money, you're dealing with what? But you are dealing with something real, David, and this is the point. People think, well, then it's, you can just keep doing this. But you are dealing with something real. And to the best of my calculations, what we're dealing with is the, the livelihoods and, and, and births rights and, and inheritances of our children's children's children at this stage. I think we've already spent our children's children's inheritance. And therefore, you know, because that graph you, you described there in relation to the relationship between productivity and income, yes, it's very interesting. But there's another one, as you know, between GDP, which is a, a related, though not entirely synonymous uh, uh, concept, uh, and, and with debt. And, you know, what you actually see is that in, in America and all right across the Western world, you know, GDP and, and debt, those two lines went more or less together they were almost the same line up to, as you say, the mid-60s of 1970. And suddenly they started to diverge. And now the, 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 the GDP one is kind of like a slightly kind of a slight gradient across the, the going up from that period, you know, maybe 25 degrees. And the debt started off going like this. And then it started going like this. And it's now like a rocket heading for the moon. And that's essentially the reason why we're in this situation. But in this context, it appears we are now able to spend what is called money, you know, freely, without consequence, except, of course, there will be consequences. The consequences, if we even leave aside our children's children's children, the consequences are that the price, that is, we're, the, the, the currency that we are now paying in is our own freedom. We are giving up the most basic freedoms. We, are being, we will be required to give up the most basic freedoms, to imprison ourselves in a digital jail and to be answerable on a 24-7 basis to basically watching guards, watching everything we do. And this is the cost of the prosperity so-called that we have so-called enjoyed for the last, whatever, 50 years. You're quite correct. You, see, you, you, you said several times, it calls itself money, or what's claimed to be money, right? And you're you're casting doubts about whether it really is. And I think you're absolutely right to do so. Uh, we've gone as far as to start to use different words, right? We say money, money is money is a commodity. Money is gold and silver. Um, everything else is money substitutes, or it's currency, or something else. We try and use different words to separate the concepts. Um, we spoke to an Islamic scholar. Uh, last year, he he used the term money with integrity, by which he meant gold and silver. I, I, and I thought that was a beautiful phrase because it did show um, the nature of the corruption of society that comes from corrupting of, of the money supply. Um, and the the fact that these two concepts are so intertwined is often missed. Uh, there was a, uh, an American... Um, a, a, a religious and economic scholar called Gary North. He died, uh, I think, a year or two ago now. Um, back in 1973, he decided he would write an economic commentary in the Bible. And he thought, well, I'll devote three hours every morning to this, and I should knock it in the head, oh, nine months or so, and I'll publish it. Well, it ended up being 31 volumes, and he finished it in 2012. Right, so he spent a good part of his life doing a line-by-line -line economic commentary in the Bible because there is simply so much in there that's relevant to economic life. Economic life and moral life um, are very, very closely related and to corrupt one corrupts both. Uh, 
your um, your your uh, your article goes on to talk about some of this and some of the funding that that is generated to change society using this funny money. And of course, the the, the aspect of of um, of the funny money being uh, something that has a real consequence is very true. Right? We're starting to see it now with inflation. We're starting to see it now where we're all much poorer. You know, the Bank of England are saying, well, you just got to have to admit you're, you're all poorer now. Tough luck, thanks for pointing. And this drain on our society, the fact that you cannot really have um, a, 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 a man supporting a wife and a family now on one salary, it's, it's almost impossible. For most jobs, it's impossible to do. Um, for most jobs in most places in the West, it's simply, uh, it can't be done. And it can't be done not because people are demanding a higher standard of living and, and lots of luxuries. It can't be done because it can't be done. They can't afford the basics. Um, so all of this is real, is real enough. And the falsity of the money supply, of the money substitutes, is generating a lot of things, you point this out, that wouldn't happen if we had money with integrity. So you say, money is the root of all evil. In a day or two, a month of compulsory celebration of LGBT power menace will kick off right across the globe, mostly financed from the pockets of people who have no right to speak against what is, in truth, a massive exercise in bullying and intimidation, and even more fundamentally attack on the values and morals of Western civilization, and far less abstractedly, upon its children. So this is part of the power loss that, that you were describing there, that when um, when the money is no longer real, ownership of it is no longer real. Ownership of it is uh, constantly subverted, essentially by theft. Uh, Gary North's um, short summary book after he finished his 31 volumes was Christian Economics and One Lesson, and the one lesson was Thou Shalt Not Steal. Um, via taxation, via inflation, there's theft everywhere and all the time. And the products of that theft are then directed um, wherever the beneficiaries wish them to be. And the society as a whole, being impoverished, no longer has the financial resources to resist. And hence, we have the sort of LGBT uh, power game that you've described. Um, is is that how you see it? Would you like to expand a little bit on that sort of uh, I think loss, that's right. loss of power, loss of liberty issue? There's another yes. There's another issue, which is the 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 the, the shift from an economy based on human work, labor, and sweat and blood, and 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 um, and into a, a model that is basically a, a roulette table. You know that we're dealing by and large when we talk about economics, we're talking about basically bets. Uh, on the stock market and so on, bonds and all this stuff, right? So uh, that has fundamentally changed without it becoming visible above ground, the philosophy of politics, whether we're aware of it or not. And we, we often look at the politicians who now rule us, particularly in the last three years, and they do rule us or try to. That's their, their their ambition, and we we see there's a certain vindictiveness in their in their 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 gaze and their sneers and their abruptness to, to to the public. Where this is a take it or leave it, you know, suck it up. That's the kind of subtext of almost everything, and that bespeaks something much deeper, which is that they know they are aware that in a certain sense now the human work is no is only a small part of what is called economics, that the fate of the world is decided on these roulette, tab roulette tables. And what is called money can be, you know, obtained much easier than simply taxing the ordinary person, although they continue to do that. So corporations, by dropping a few crumbs from their table, can f keep the Irish economy ticking over uh, through the year, you know, for, in, because they're here to tax dodge. And they have a few spare, you know, a little bit of, of, of shrapnel that they can cast in the way of the uh, uh, Irish revenue uh, commissioners and and that that allows them to that allows the economy, Irish economy to boast about itself as being the rich we're now the richest country in the world like which is complete nonsense uh, anybody who lives in Ireland tells you this is just laughable yeah, except it's not funny 
Uh, you know, and, and but the thing is, the politicians behave like it is true, and they speak to the people as if it is true, and they more or less treat the people almost as if they are mendicants, that they are no longer earning their keep, as it were. That's the, that's the subtext that you feel from these people, and and as a result of that, then there's a, that radiates and, and, and people pick it up you know and there is a sense that, that that may explain to a high degree you know the the compliance and the obedience that you see that people have a sense even though these things are never discussed in these terms of course the 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 economic discourse just like the political discourse and the spiritual discourse there is completely bankrupt it, it doesn't happen it's not permitted anybody who has anything interesting to say about economics or spirituality they're not permitted on the mainstream media that's the end of it or anything else either uh, so that's a factor, I think, that 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 we're dealing with here, that uh, the these economies have taken off, and therefore, in a certain sense, what's actually happened is our democracy democracies have been abolished implicitly, without anybody announcing it. This had happened for some time, I think, before 2020. That the tone, the the attitude of politicians, the political class all over the world, all over the West in particular, was that, you know, that was all history. And you can see they, there's a kind of an explanation, David, in that for some of the things that puzzled us so much in the context of the, the unwillingness of liberals to speak out against the lockdowns, for example, which 25 years ago they would have very volubly done. Uh, so, so in the money context then, you're talking about all of these this fake money being available. Like we, There is no money. Let's get this clear. There is no money because really we are in such debt that it is, you know, it is completely nonsensical to talk about us having any capacity to spend money on the basis that we are entitled to do so. I mean, as a state, as, a, as, a, as an economy, because we are so far in, into the future in our debts that, you know, it's completely unreal. But what is actually happening now is that they're trying to, to, to close down one system, having, it having collapsed, it having failed, and find a way of starting a new one slightly on an adjoining site, uh, the digital currency, central bank digital currency is the chosen model. And somehow transfer everything from one to the other and this is the important part, without them, and I mean the powerful, richest people in the world, without them losing one red cent. That's, that's the most important thing. And so what, happens, what is going to happen is that everybody, the ordinary people, the working people, will lose pretty much everything in order to make sure that they don't lose that single red cent. And, uh, and, the, and the money system, as we, that's why, you know, people say, you hear people say things like, oh, they're, they're, they're putting uh, uh, refugees up in uh, top-class accommodation with our money, uh, but they won't look after the Irish. That isn't actually true, because it's not our money. It's nobody's money. It's not money. It's just something they use, to and it creates a movement. Of course it does. It, it creates effect. Somebody may... Uh, redecorate a house, for example, with it, and that that redecorated house will remain. But the money itself has no value; it is nothing. It is it is a fabrication. It is uh, created ex nihilo, out of nothing, and will disappear then when it no, is no longer you know relevant. It will simply be struck off the screen and erased. And and so all of this is it's this form of magic, really. But it it shows you, you know that. In, in for so many years, what was really happening when we were facing things like austerity, and that's only 10 years ago, that this too was a fabrication. There was no necessity for, for austerity. They could have done something like this, but do it for the benefit of the people, say. Uh, but that wasn't a thing that the powerful, rich interest wanted to happen for all kinds of complex reasons. So, you know, I don't think people really understand you see, we're not permitted to understand, and it's very difficult. I'm not saying even that everything that I'm saying is absolutely correct. It's a broad, it's a very much a broad stroke sketch of what we're facing, but because this is horrendously complex, but it's something very, very strange about the way that, you know, for example, the way that for the last year it has been clear that the the the, the money systems of the world, the dollar, the the sterling, the euro. Uh, are in extra time, and yet they're holding on. They're holding on. They're able to contain it while they're preparing the CBDC, the central bank digital currency. And as it seems to me that what they're actually doing is they're trying to bring the 
people to a pitch of desperation that they will accept anything in the end. And that's all a matter of timing, and it's a, a matter of juggling. So uh, I don't know if... if um, this is the bizarre thing about all of this period has been, David, that, uh, you know, th there seems to be a political discourse out there in the mainstream media, an economics discourse. But it's pretending like, it's as if it's pretending that the dateline is something like uh, 2002 or something, or maybe 1998, you know, when certain things might still have obtained, which no longer obtained. We're in a completely different situation. We're in a completely aberrational situation. We're in a, in a completely unprecedented situation. Uh, and there's no telling how it's going to end up. I mean, where are we all going to have to... It's quite possible, for example, as to my mind. And, you know, I'm, I'd be very interested to hear your view and uh, the view of economists if they would speak about such things. It's very possible, I would say, that, that if the in-game we're headed for uh, in Ireland, for example, is that at a certain point when it emerges that all of these debts are there, they're all owed in a certain sense corporately by Ireland, that means the Irish people, uh, that the people with the chits for those debts will come and say, well, we want ours, we want something. And, and it seems to me that if you were to actually price, put a price on every blade of grass, every grain of sand and every drop of rainwater in Ireland, price it, you still wouldn't have enough to pay all these debts. And what will actually happen is these guys, well, we'll just take Ireland. We'll just take Ireland. And then you'll have nothing, but you'll be happy. And why will you be happy? Because you'll be afraid that something far worse would have happened. You own nothing and be happy is, is the uh, rallying call of the World Economic Forum. And uh, I think they've deeply regretted saying the quiet bit out loud. Um, you make a good point, though, because it's not only Ireland that can't repay the debts. Really, no country in the West can repay the debts. America, you know, the, the, the largest, richest country, um, the country with the greatest natural gifts, and um, with the greatest record of um, essentially you know, f freedom and a, and a benign environment without external threats, um, they are now so hopelessly in debt, there's no way the debt can ever be repaid. I mean, we're going through the debt ceiling crisis just now, and they've sort of got a deal, and they're going to see if they pass the deal through Congress. The, that, this is an admission that if we can't borrow more money, we'll default. Well, that's the definition of a Ponzi scheme. Unless you can bring more money in, then we can't possibly repay the existing debts. That's the admission that's a Ponzi scheme. It can never be repaid. The, the, the idea that America will go on to a long-term uh, fiscal surplus and, and gradually pay down the, what is it, $32 trillion that they currently owe um, and, until everyone's paid back is just Fantasy. It can never be repaid. And the only thing that can happen, therefore, is default. And there's only two ways of default. One is inflation, right? The, 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 the value of the money is inflated away to almost nothing. Um, inflation's running quite high. It's over 100% in Argentina. It's been up to 10% in America. Um, or you actually default. You officially default. And you say to people, well, we'll pay you five cents in the dollar. You take it or leave it. Um, and ultimately, that's going to have to happen. Because the idea that... Um, you can have an, un, an unworkable amount of debt with compound interest working away and somehow it, it, there'll be a soft landing is fanciful. I thought you put it very well. I'll quote another piece from your, your article. Uh, you said, debt is therefore an expression of human desire exceeding human capacity to um, generate and maybe satisfy human needs. Um, and you say the process of modern money creation could be deemed a form of priestcraft. Now, I thought that was a very insightful line because uh, if you look at uh, possibly the best book writ written on money and banking and, and the mechanics of how it operates is, is uh, Murray Rothbard's The Mystery of Banking. And he used the phrase, the, the, the word mystery, very accurately because this summons up uh, an almost religious, uh, almost impossible to know um, uh, uh, um, 
um, process that doesn't have, you know, readily understood rationality at its heart. And of course, when you're talking about all so-called money, money substitutes, almost all money substitutes, not being money anymore, i.e. being a generally desirable, desirable good, be it gold or silver or your grandmother's eggs, um, that people say, yes, I see that, I, I, I want to hold that, I'll give you some of what I've got to get that, and we've got an exchange and we've got actual money. Um, instead, it's being created out of nothing by banks. When the banks create it, they create a liability and they back that liability with an asset, and that asset is a security, a debt instrument. And so everything's built on debt. Most of it government debt. And so the government's become ever more indebted, and we're told it's a good thing. Um, the whole economy is based on a strange circulation of dollars and dollar-denominated United States government debt. And there is less and less real value underpinning it. It's more and more bankrupt. And it's a strange sight waiting for it to collapse. But I feel collapse it must. Um, you, you go on to um, look more at the civilizational um, decay that, that comes from all of this. Um, you're right here... Uh, Little more than a decade or so in the past, it was though money had all but become extinct. Now our government splashes around the place on things we do not ask for. Cycle lanes that turn public thoroughfares into Olympic Stadia. Street furniture that no one ever sits upon. The purchase of farms for the purchase of closing them down. Modular homes for unvetted migrants, while native citizens sleep in tents. Roadworks that never end. So you're seeing this odd expenditure and these strange decisions coming from the governmental, administrative, um, managerial caste, if you like. Um, and you comment on this, you say, the issue is that we do not have a civilization and have not had one for a long time. If we had, then the people now in charge of our countries would never have risen above the roles of nightclub doormen or traffic wardens. What I want to put to you here, John, is um, a, a big part of the driver of all of this decay, of the decay of money and the decay of our, of, of our, of our leadership. Uh, we have to look at ourselves. We have to look at what we as peoples have done and where we have been bought out because uh, the desire to live at someone else's expense, the desire for the handout, the desire for a state that says, don't you worry about your future, we'll do that for you. You just go down the pub, don't you worry about a thing. The, the, the desire to, the willingness to vote for someone, to put someone in power, who, who, who lies and says, you can have a free lunch. Oh, that sounds good. The, the surrender of integrity that's involved in all of that, um, I think is vital in generating a kind of bottom-up movement towards corruption at the top of society and hand-in-hand and hand with that corruption of the financial institutions of society. They're corrupt because the majority of men and women in the West have themselves willingly cooperated with the corruption. Do you see it that way? Yes and no. I mean, I, 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 in principle, yes, in the sense that this is clearly what's happened, and and uh, and and we should have, as a, as a, as populations, as citizens, as as electorates, we should have been aware of it. But I have said that you know, did none of this has been discussed. I mean, I've never heard in the mainstream media, in the in my life. A discussion about this, the way money is generated as debt. It's never discussed, even though it's a fundamental, it's almost the first thing you see when you open the box. What's this? This is a strange mechanism here. What does it do? And that's the way it works. And, and they don't talk about that. So people don't really understand. So people, therefore, in, in our Western economies, think that what's happening is by and large organic. In other words, you know, if I have a big car, 
it's because I earned it. And, you know, I may well feel that I have, I have earned it, uh, that I've written a lot of articles and, you know, I can show you them all and that's a lot of work and so on and so on and so on. But how do I say, how do I adjudicate that when I don't understand the mechanisms of what makes, what is the correlation of, of the value of the work to the, to the, to the, to the money, that they, what they call money? So all of these things are at, at cross-purposes and have been. And we've been borrowed, living on borrowed time and borrowed everything and you know that's kind of related to the to the also the, the somewhat bigger idea of, of of the west and its kind of state of privilege if you like in the context economically in the world that it's almost as if we felt that what was happening there was again naturalistic organic and it was almost no more than our due on the basis of our you know uh, sophistication and civilized values and you know skills and genius and so on but in fact, what the what the what the, the, the what the sums tell us is that that's not true. What the sums tell us is that we have been living way beyond our means. That there's a complete disproportionality between, you know, what we think we've done to deserve this and what actually we have done, and that the debt is the measure of that. It's as I say, the measure of our desire gone out of control. Unable, unable to simply say, well, okay, I'll make do with what I have. I mean, this is something that, you know, I mean, I don't want to go all nostalgic, but, you know, my father's generation, my mother's generation, they never really went any more beyond their means than they could reclaim in, say, like a year. That would be a pretty daring enterprise for them, to borrow money, that, more money than you could repay in a year. And then they would only do it for very particular context and so and something in which there would be a tangible asset that could be disposed of in the event that everything went pear-shaped. Uh, we don't think like that anymore. And we don't think at all about this. We just think this is the way it is. You know, and you said about the way that, that, that uh, you know, you were talking in the beginning about the disproportionality between uh, wages and productivity and so on, and the way that, that, that those two lines diverge. One of the factors there was that we didn't notice this, you know. We didn't notice that, you know, maybe about 30 years ago, they started after, certainly after the, 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 the big spike, interest rate spikes of the uh, early 90s. They started, they brought the interest rates down, and then they started to give us more and more cheap money. But at the same time, wages were pretty much plateauing. And that was how that trick was done. All of this is all conjuring. You talked about mystery. It's also conjuring that, you know, they, 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 they give us uh, cheap uh, loans in lieu of, of higher wages and so on. So there's all, and, but so we're not even earning the money anymore. We're just borrowing it and we're, we're spending it and trying to pay it back with our salaries which isn't really working, and so on, and our taxes, which isn't working. So the whole system is completely kaput. It doesn't work at all. It doesn't work. I mean, this whole question of the mystery, it is, it is a mystery because, you know, if I produce something, say uh, a kilo or a stone of potatoes, and I sell them to you, and you give me whatever the, the coin each is, uh, and it doesn't matter whether it's a silver coin or, a, a, you know, a tenor, uh, it's pretty much the same thing, because then that 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 tenor goes into the into the murk of the economy, and it goes round and round and round. And the idea is that 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 will kind of maintain some control on the appetites and the ambitions and the aspirations of those who have ha have the handling of it, and that it'll come out at the end of a very long sequence, and everything will still be intact. That no longer works, and it's precisely because we have departed from the the concept of real money, gold coins, whatever that would be, that would absolutely be constructed to to track precisely the value, a measure of the produce, the effort, and the reward, and that that remains. But you see, the problem is that the gambling tables aren't interested in that. The, the guys at the gambling tables are no interest in that because they don't make money by effort or reward. They make it by gambling. And, and for, it to, for the gambling to work, there needs to be all kinds of other forms of alchemy in the mix in order to multiply the figures on the screen. And that's been our undoing, or part of our undoing. So I suppose if you were to say, are we to blame? Yes, but we're, we're kind of innocent dupes in it because 
we have been persuaded by the corrupt media that what is happening is still naturalistic. If you look at um, economic uh, commentary in general, it looks at things like productivity and, you know, interest rates and so on, all things that are themselves to some extent real. But the fundamental model is completely unreal. And they never give you any hint about that. The commentary, even from such people as the Bank of England, right, who are talking yeah. about inflation, and they, they give us all of these, I mean, with a straight face. So inflation, we're, 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 we've got our eyes on this, we've got a finger on the pulse. And it's caused by supply shocks, and it's caused by, um, you know, wage push, and it's caused by... So they, they'll, they'll give us the various incantations. They won't ever say, oh, it was caused by the fact that we shut the economy down for two years, and we just printed money like it was going out of fashion. And we distributed this through the economy, and inflation is an increase in money supply, so we increased the money supply. There's no honesty. There's no honesty about what they did. And there's this, I think, I find quite pathetic attempt to blame anybody but them. Well, it's not us. We are, we are working hard to fight to protect the value of the pound. That's part of our core mission. And you look at, this, you look at these people and say, well, look, since we came off the gold standard at the start of the First World War, um, and it isn't interesting how to really kill a lot of people, you need to have cheap money. Um, we came off the gold standard at the start of the First World War. A pound was a sovereign. That was the definition. You could take a pound note in and you would get a gold sovereign. And a gold sovereign now is £400. Which means the gold sovereign hasn't changed, but the purchasing power of the pound has evaporated by 399 four hundredths. So that's almost a complete wipeout of, of, of the currency unit under the wise stewardship of the Bank of England and co. and the, and, and the government. Now, how do you actually run a fair society when you're saying to someone, well, save for your old, old age, right? Because, you know, you, you want to have a, a safe retirement. So put some money aside, save for your old age. When that money is deteriorating at that sort of rate, right? You cannot do it. You cannot have, you, you're, you're making some excuses for the, for the public and, and, and you're making a good point because the incentives when the underlying value of the currency unit is, de is declining so fast, the incentives become skewed, they become distorted. You don't have an incentive to save. You have an incentive to pay some lying politician to promise you a pension based on someone else's hard work. Because actually, with the money, with the money value, the, the value of the currency unit being destroyed, that becomes sensible in a strange sort of way. So it, it, it is quite fundamental. And yes, to an extent, we have been dupes. I, I think you make a good point there. You know, one of the most disgusting things I find about all of this is that the way that the politicians are stoking up animosity between different sections of society, you know, the millennials against the boomers, you know what I mean? This kind of stuff. Oh, the boomers have all these big houses and we can't get houses of our own. As if this was a kind of, again, an organic process. I mean, there are very good reasons, which are probably too complex to go into now, why that situation has come about. But it's not the fault of boomers themselves that they actually still have houses because you would expect people in a civilized society, which has been going so long as this one has been, that to be able to afford to live in a decent house. That is, shouldn't be such an extraordinary thing. And the only reason those houses are so extraordinarily dear is that the prices have been distorted by banking and banking practice. When in fact, you know, my father, you know, built a house in the 30s with four of his mates in a few weekends probably on about three months' salary or income. And it was perfectly adequate, but, and there was no necessity for, for, for loans at all. You see, this, the same people then who will, will accuse those boomers of having taken their birthright and by living in a bigger house than they can ever dream about, are the ones who took the 350 quid in Ireland or whatever it was in the UK per week for staying at home during the lockdown. And I would say to those kind of people, this, can't, this isn't real. This cannot work. This cannot be. This is completely bonkers. 
you can, an economy can't work like this. And they said, oh, of course it can. Yeah, the government will just print money and it's fine. It's all fine. But I said, you know, it's a terrible pity. You know, my father died in 1989 and, you know, he never knew. He got up at four, half four every morning, six days a week for 50 years and worked until 7.30 at night driving a mail car. He never knew that he could make the same money lying in bed reading the paper. He just didn't know that. And I'm so sorry that I couldn't tell him that. If I was still alive, I'd say, no, 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 don't need, you don't need to go out in the snow. You don't need to drive your van in, this, in those terrible conditions. Stay in bed. I'll make you a cup of tea. And here's the farmer's journal for a read. Okay. Now, this is, this is the bizarre and ludicrous outcome of what we've generated here. Like I, I, in my article, I talked about some, some supposed puzzle that's in the British economy at the moment, which is that uh, there's huge unemployment, but there's an it's impossible to find workers. How could this be? Well, the answer is very simple, that the differential between what somebody is able to earn, I, I made it up on an hourly basis on the basis of one, way, one hourly rate, I think it was 1075 in Ann Summers, uh, stacking shelves or whatever. The differential for, between what they would have got for sitting at home in, in, in May of 2020 is... 225 or something per hour that's the differential so that means they have to get out of bed go get a bus pay for the bus or pay for the tube uh buy a sandwich buy a cup of tea or coffee and for that out of that 220 225 when in fact they could be sitting at home, lying at home in bed watching netflix and the government is puzzled as to why people aren't taking up this wonderful uh, opportunity to earn 225 per hour in the modern British economy. And this is another symptom of the craziness that, that you know, you see, and the amazing thing here is, David, this, that economists are silent about this. They're sitting there as if they don't see any of this. And in fact, that article in Spectator put it all down to Brexit. It has nothing whatsoever to do with Brexit. You know, like, it's crazy. And, and people have no idea. And it's, it's amazing, the Brexit thing is amazing because it's almost as if now, Brexit actually was all orchestrated in order to provide an excuse for the craziness and the madness that's actually happening now. I mean, I find whenever I start a conversation with people over here about something that I know and have known for three years about what's going on, but they don't recognize, they're not familiar with the terminology that I might be using because it doesn't, it doesn't resonate with anything they've heard on the news. And they'll listen to me for about, um, you know, a minute or so, and then I'll say, like, you mean Brexit? I said, no, I don't mean Brexit. I mean the end of the world. The um, nature of the economics profession, or the most, the mainstream part of it, is of course it's long since set, surrendered to be part of the intellectual cover, um, the, the 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 intellectuals of the government. So they're they're putting forward um, ideas that are based on. Uh, state intervention counters recession. That's that's the basic principle. You need the wise hand of our glorious leaders um, to to put their hand on the tiller and guide the ship of state through these stormy waters. Because otherwise, you know, otherwise you'll just be tossed and turned and overturned and, and wrecked, and, and and it'll be a disaster. So there's the assumption that normal human interaction um, will end up uh, in 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 catastrophic failure. Um, the idea of the invisible hand where we all work hard and because we coordinate our activities via a, a reasonably free and fair market, we actually find the most valuable ways to serve one another and this helps everybody. That's gone from the economics profession largely because it's gone from government. It's not in the interest of government for people to start thinking, hey, we can do this for ourselves, we don't need government. Um, and 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 the, the the governmental hand is visible very strongly in the in the economics profession. You talk about the government hand. Um, uh, you're right. So we hear only words of contempt for the founders of our civilization. Those men of steel and iron, grey of hair and suit, who placed the restraining hand on zealotry and exuberance when it came to matters of public interest or concern, knowing that this would unleash the pent up energies of the people in the direction of a better future. Now their places are taken by smirking scoundrels whose venality, fecklessness and ignorance, no words have yet been invented. Um, <laughs> smirking scoundrels, I think, is a beautiful description of our po political leaders. Um, I, I, I Obviously, sitting here in Scotland, we've just lost, I'm pleased to say, Nicola Sturgeon. 
um, who had developed, and all the politicians around her got the same habit. Um, whenever she would put forward an, what the opposing point of view might be, however unfairly she might state it, she would always give a little guttural snorty laugh, right? As though anyone would could possibly think that her wonderful policy wasn't correct. Um, so smirking scoundrels was, was, was correct. And you go on, he says, we must conclude that this is not an accident, but an orchestrated imposition of the most vapid mediocrity upon the institutions of state and culture. Um, all this was enabled by money. But here we stumble upon the extraordinary truth. Money of the old kind could not have facilita facilitated such an insurgency of mediocrity. So you're seeing this as an orchestrated attack. And this is this is something that the UK called, particularly Brian Gerrish comments on quite a lot, that this is not accidental, it's an orchestrated attack. Um, I'm um, a little less certain on that because I see both orchestrated a top-down and also a kind of cultural bottom-up two-phase attack, but I think the point's still well made. Um, and, and the fact that it could not be funded, it could not be generated with real money because real money, money with integrity, just isn't given over to these sorts of enterprises um, because it has real value. And it's it's this it's the strange fake money um, that that is the um, the 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 motivating uh, engine behind the attack on our society. Um, again, I'll, I'll quote a quote your, your summary piece here. You say fake money begets societies comprising of nothing but lies. Um, so. I mean, I think I think that is very insightful, and it happens so subtly and in so many ways. It's difficult to trace, but I still feel you've you've hit upon a very deep truth there. Um, the lack of integrity, the society of lies that comes from the counterfeit money, um, is something that is uh, inescapable in our societies now. It's everywhere. It's in the benefit system that. Um, incentivizes people to stay at home. It transpires that if you subsidize idleness, fecklessness, and illness, you get more of them, just like you get more of anything if you subsidize it. Um, we've got uh, a situation in, in Britain now that if you're doing quite well and you're middle class and you're around about 50,000 salary and you get a pay rise, because of the way the tax and benefit system works, your marginal tax rate is 98%. Uh, it all goes. The pay rise doesn't exist. The government takes it all. Right? So there is no incentive at all to push forward to further your career because you're just getting longer hours and more stress for, for nothing. The, this, the incentives become increasingly, uh, in, increasingly twisted. The dials are pointing in the wrong direction. Um, this is... Um, could, could we maybe just, we've been talking for almost an hour, uh, could, could, could we bring this uh, to, to a conclusion with a few comments about how you see things affecting Ireland? We cover Ireland uh, from time to time on the UK call, not nearly enough. Um, there's so much happening there. There's so many changes happening with such rapidity. How do you see these pressures and these weaponised um, um, money substitutes affecting your own country? What I see really, David, is a moral inversion in all kinds of, under all kinds of headings. In other words, bad has become good, good has become bad, black has become white. I mean, you know, I mentioned my father earlier on and, and, and he was a hardworking man, as were all of his generation. And, you know, I mean, it never occurred to me growing up that the purpose of work or the purpose of politics or the purpose of journalism or the purpose could be anything other than a constructive edifice. In other words, it was the purpose of it was to do something that would benefit the world and you would be rewarded for that. That has completely been flipped now in this model of fake money because when you actually think about it, most of our politicians now get out of bed in the morning they brush their teeth, they put on their clothes with the precise intention of doing destruction. 
of making people unhappy, of dismantling tanks, of urinating on tanks. Uh, you know, they're trying to push perversion into schools, for example, a great project for a politi politician to put on his gravestone, is it not? Uh, you know, like this is this is something that is 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 really hard to contemplate, and I can't actually. I believe I confess that I, I have not yet got the words to really capture the essence of this because it really is a manifest a manifestation of something very close to evil, and it seems to me that there is a direct correlation between what we've been talking about in the perversion of money and this phenomenon, because it seems to me that you know. This is always implicit in economics, by the way. Going way back, I remember 30 years ago writing about the whole concept of GDP and, and so on and pointing out that actually it was not a measure of beneficial uh, change, you know, that it incorporates lots of stuff that isn't good at all. And, and there's, no, there's no mechanism to actually tell one from the other. And it seems that simply what well, this is a kind of an interim period. Well, for example, I would say, well, the, we have a road here around the city of Dublin, the M50. And I would make the point that, well, for example, if there was a multiple car pileup on that uh, uh, motorway tonight and required 17 ambulances and 14 fire brigades and 32 squad cars to attend and multiple personnel and uh, doctors, nurses, police officers, firemen, etc., uh, all of this would go into GDP as a positive contribution to growth. Now it seems that we've got to the absolute extreme uh, of that logic, whereby everything, the destruction of our civilization is now a profitable business. I mean, you have, got, you have things like, for example, uh, operations going on here. You know, for, for several years now, for example, it has been impossible for people like me to speak in public in Ireland in a manner that can be advertised so that people will know we'll be in a certain place at a certain time. Because if we do that, you know, a bunch of mass thugs paid by the government or some agency of the government will come and try to disrupt the meeting, uh, do some serious damage, maybe even physical damage to me or somebody else, menace and threaten and, and so on. And this is all regarded now as fine and dandy, and it is indeed part of our new Ireland, our new progressive Ireland. It has been paid for out of the exchequer, and it is presumably seen as contributing to the future progress of our country and our economy uh, in some way, in some roundabout way. This is what I mean. So we, you see, people talk about evil and, and demonic uh, forces and diabolical forces and satanic forces. And I don't discount that in a certain sense. If only that, certainly I will accept it as a metaphor for what's happening. But I think if you actually look into the entrails of what's happened to money, and if you look and consider the relationship between money and the great, I, I touched on this in the article, the great, uh, you know, vices of man, uh, greed and, and, and grasping and, and, and you know, Really, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, mercilessness and and so on. Uh, as you can see, there is a very close relationship between the urge for money, because money being the kind of the tracker of human desire in the public realm. You can by following money, you can see where. Uh, the, that desire is how it is moving and what its nature is. And I think there is a very close relationship between those phenomena, that actually when we talk about Satanism or, or the, the demonic, we could easily translate that into an economic equation, I think. Uh, I'm not necessarily qualified to do that, but I do think that there is something there that explains a lot that is otherwise explicable only by what sounds like hyperbole. I remember well when uh, the UK decided to include illegal drug taking, uh, dealing and prostitution in the GDP figures. And this put UK GDP up. And of course, the, this was back in 2014, we're still in the EU. And our contributions to the EU um, depended on GDP levels. So the EU then immediately came and gave us a bill uh, for quite a large sum of money, which was their cut of our cut of the prostitution our government's cut of the prostitution. Um, so I thought that was a nice moment. Um, but your point's well made. It, 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 I've often been struck by the fact that when, uh, in the book of Revelation, in the Bible, when the, the, um, the, the centre of, uh, of false religion, of persecution of the truth, um, that, is, that is called uh, Mystery Babylon the Great, um, 
the great false church, when it falls, uh, who, who's unhappy? It says, and the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. Right? Because they cannot sell their merchandise anymore. There is a link. There's a link between evil doing and grasping um, and seeking after money. There is for sure. And I think we have to we have to recognize this. We have to um, start a public a public discourse which actually discusses it, looks at it, and and considers it properly. And uh, for all, all that you're doing in that area, John, thank you very much. Is there anything you'd like to say before we go? No, just to, to add to what you were saying there, David, which is the, the quotation with which I start the, the, the article, which is from the Gospel of Mark, which is a, the description of Jesus uh, running the, the, the money changers from the temple. I mean, this is the time when Jesus, in his earthly life, went absolutely bear shark. You know, the one time we kind of say, he says, no, I'm not having any of this stuff. And he went absolutely bonkers with his whip and so on. And, and, and uh, you know, it's not, it was not for nothing. He understood all this. That's what he was saying, that there is this profound link between money, perverted desire, and evil. And that in a certain sense, we don't need to go beyond this to understand what has been happening in our cult countries and our cultures for the last three years in terms of what I talked at the, at the beginning about, which is the vindictiveness and the ugliness of our political class now. And indeed, the, the rootlessness and indifference to ethics of our journalistic class and indeed the indifference to ethics of our medical uh, professions and so on. And, and the, all these things are connected. And ultimately, you know, you come back to that very simple and rather cliched, banal saying, trite saying, uh, you know, money is the, ev the root of all evil. Yes, um, uh, I want to thank you, John, for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, until next time, and I do hope there'll be a next time. Take care.